You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. I'm Diana Moxon. On today's show, I am delighted to have in the studio Australian architect Guy Morgan, who has been visiting Columbia this week from Adelaide and whose book, Building Your Bali Dream Villa, is a gorgeous look at how to design sustainably and respect the environment. And later in the show, we're going to go back to an earlier chat I had with Marie Hunter, currently chair of the the Missouri Citizens for the Arts Advisory Council. But first, the venerable Guy Morgan. It is an absolute delight to have you cast your architecturally perspicacious eye around our lovely city of Columbia. Uh, Diana, I can only say that the uh, the uh, studio looks amazing <laughs> and uh, is an eclectic, shabby chic uh, style. <laughs> That uh, needs no, no treatment whatsoever. Well, that's perfect, because uh, we aren't going to do any treatment for a little <laughs> while, so that's, that's good to know. So um, let's tell everybody, how come you're here? I'm here because you're my best friend, <laughs> and uh, I've known you since the Great Depression, <laughs> and uh, I've come here... I actually surprised you the other night for your birthday. You did an Oscar-winning performance. I did an Oscar-winning performance as a bum lying on your driveway wrapped in blankets <laughs> uh, with the help of your lovely husband and friends and completely surprised you for your birthday, and that was so worth it. I I am amazed that uh, you managed to pull that off because my lovely husband is mm. the he's such a bad liar mm. that he doesn't lie and in no. fact you had built that into the equation. We had your friends are much better at lying than he is, <laughs> and we only released information to him on a needs to know basis, and luckily we did because otherwise he would have blown it. <laughs> he but, would, but he didn't. His only job was to keep you at home and keep you awake. And he did that very, very well. He, he did a great job. I, mm. had, I had no idea. There were little things like I found some extra food in the fridge, mm. which, you know, he never goes out and buys food, or very rarely, unless I've sent him out to buy food. And so I thought, well, that's a little strange that there's all this extra food in the fridge. And But it just, the moment passed. Mm. But he had been, he was ready for me to say, why is the food in the fridge? He'd been coached by everybody. Yeah, like, here yeah. are all the lines that you should say. Depending on Correct. these different scenarios. Correct. Correct. So, so yes, about 10 o'clock at night, um, my friend came and knocked on the door and, uh, and said, there's a, looks like there's somebody, like a homeless guy sleeping in your driveway. And so we went out and I was kind of tiptoeing out, not quite sure what was going on. And there was this bundle of a body wrapped up in a sleeping bag on the driveway and lots of kind of grunt sounds coming from the sleeping bag. And so my friend who was in on it said, sorry, mate, but, you know, you're going to have to move along. You can't stay here. And there was more grunts from the sleeping bag. And then a couple, you could hear bottles chinking. And I couldn't really see what was going on because I was behind the other side of the Very big... expensive bottles. <laughs> right. Expen a bottle of Stolich and I and a bottle of a Bollinger, Bollinger. Uh, because back in the 1990s and ever since really we've been huge fans of Abfab and their favourite cocktail which is the Bolly Stolly. I thought it was a Stolly Bolly Stolly Bolly <laughs> and, and so slipping those out through the hole at the top of the sleeping bag was my way of 
uh, dropping hints as to who was inside the sleeping bag, but you didn't get it. I didn't get it. I didn't see the Stolly Bolly uh, slipping out. So I just stood there and said very quietly, do you want something to eat? Thinking that I had leftovers from dinner. Do you want some food? That's all I could hear. And and then there was another classic line that was delivered by my friend, which was, just leave him, he's too slow. She's and then slow. I knew that there could only be one person lying in a sleeping bag on my driveway. And sure enough, it was, it was Guy me. Morgan. It was me. <laughs> Much screaming and hugging and bouncing around ensued. <laughs> and luckily nobody got shot. Because <laughs> we were being loud. And more than one bolly stollies were consumed on the night. <laughs> it were. So that was a lovely surprise for my birthday. And Guy actually was sitting in on last week's Speaking of the Arts show and was so inspired that actually we ended up going to see the art show Craig Norton. We did. And then yesterday on Sunday, because we are pre-recording this, we uh, went to see Fun Home. We did. At Stevens College. We did and we enjoyed both of them very much. And then we also snuck in a visit to Yin Yang to see the amazing local drag queens. That was sensational. (laughs) Muffy... Demanda, the girls out there, just what a what a night, what a venue, what great energy they put into those performances, and I would thoroughly recommend it as uh, an entertainment experience of global proportions. Right, I mean, you've seen drag shows, as have I, all over the world, and <laughs> I have. thought the girls here did an amazing they job. They certainly are comparable with anything I've seen, and, you know, they're so sincere and they're so enthusiastic and they're so drunk. <laughs> no, they weren't. Oh, they weren't. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, they were doing they're, that sober. They're, they're so sober, is what I meant to say. <clears throat> but uh, it was it was a great night. And, you know, I mean, they don't know me from Adam and I'm from out of town, but they made me feel so welcome. People were so friendly. There was such a refreshing lack of attitude, which there sometimes is in those sorts of venues. It was just great. We had a blast. So um, Adelaide is a beautiful city for the arts. Yes, how, yes. how does, I mean, we're obviously a lot smaller in Colombia. We're only about 110,000. And what is Adelaide, a million? A million and a half, one and a half million. But I mean, what you've seen so far, I mean, is it, oh, do we have a know, comparable lifestyle with Adelaide, South Australia? Oh, <laughs> Apart from the beaches? <laughs> loaded question, but uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, yes, no beaches, but, but uh, no, I think in terms of arts, I recognise two cities, yes, of different sizes, but both of which are punching their weight, punching above their weight in terms of the arts. And to come to, you know, a city of this size and be able to see such a great play as Fun Home the other day, uh, the amazing art of Craig Norton, and then go to the, completely to the other side, you know, of the art spectrum and go to the Yin Yang Club and have a blast. Like, you guys are missing out on nothing at all. And you should be you know, proud and protective of the art scene that you have and absolutely do your utmost to support it, you know, because it's what makes, in a, in a sense, it really is what makes any city worth living in. And we're very lucky in Adelaide, even though we're the smallest of, you know, the five cities, the five main cities in Australia, or mainland cities, I should say, we're the smallest. Um, We've had a tradition of support of the arts <coughs> stemming from the 1960s. And as a result of that, we now have the largest, uh, art, second largest arts festival in the world after Edinburgh. And it is just, you know, it is everything for us in the city. And alongside of that, the main festival, the fringe festival, and then 
as soon as that finishes, you know, there's a cabaret festival, there's a comedy festival, there's a guitar festival. There's there's very few times of the year when there's no festival, you know, and and combined with some fantastic art galleries and just a, a kind of sensibility about what's going on. It's just it's a great place to live. It, we've just moved there from Sydney, you know, and Sydney's a much much bigger Sydney a city, but the art scene per capita is not nearly as uh, vibrant as it is in Adelaide, and I think that's what counts. You know, I've, I'm sure there's comparable cities around here that are much bigger, but you just the arts don't don't penetrate into society by osmosis as in the way that they do here. So, well done, Columbia. Thank you, should you very be proud. much. <laughs> so, how how are the arts funded in Adelaide? Which is there is there is there city money? Is there federal money that comes into the arts? What is the there, process? There is uh, so yes, there is federal arts grants that are that um, come into the arts, but you know they've sort of <laughs> gone by the wayside as they have in many places and been slashed um, by perhaps less forward-thinking governments. Um, and there's also city money and that's and and state money and traditionally. That's been probably the main source of keeping the arts alive in Adelaide and, and making them so successful because um, our arts festivals attract a lot of overseas visitors and boost tourism tremendously. And it's been shown that those visitors will then go on to visit our other um, tourist attractions like Kangaroo Island or the Flinders Ranges um, or the vineyards for which you know South Australia is very famous for. Um, so, and then, you know, there's private contributors and, and benefactors to the art scene as well. So I guess it's kind of similar. Probably similar than here. Yeah. In the United Kingdom, one of the ways that arts have been funded in the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years is with the National Lottery. So there's a, you know, you buy a ticket and it all goes to the National Lottery. And that's been an amazing fund booster for the arts in the UK. Does that also happen in Australia? Have you no. got the National Lottery there? No, no, we don't. We don't. No, I don't think, uh, I don't think that's been part of our culture you know, for a while. I remember there's a famous story about, you know, the, the Sydney Opera House, probably our most famous building, which, you know, which exceeded its budget about 10 minutes into the time <laughs> they started building it. And they subsequently financed the rest of it through lotteries, which, you know, were enthusiastically taken up. But I think by the time they finished it 20 years later or whatever it was, that's not quite right. But um, it was... You know, actually, they were sick of it. So the lottery thing hasn't hasn't got legs in okay. Australia. Mm. And we are fortunate here in Colombia. We have an, a department of the local city government called the Office of Cultural Affairs, and they give out around. I'm probably going to get it slightly wrong, but around one hundred five thousand dollars is available each year for other for all the arts agencies to apply for. So you, you know, you've got to put your grant application in. Mm. You can apply for. I think this year it's up to seven and a half thousand is the maximum. So it's not a giant amount. Right. And whatever, but there's always more requests for funds then there are funds right. available and since I've been here so 12 13 years the first year that I applied for the money for the Columbia Art League which was in 2007 I think there were maybe 18 or 19 agencies applying and then this last time I did it in 2017 there were 30 agencies so there's more and more arts being produced in Columbia which suggests they should put the amount up a bit shouldn't they well they, sh they <laughs> should I mean I mean there are people that say well we're lucky that we have any government money at right, all right. Uh, when you know we 
we're short of money for police and other things. And right. so, you know, the city as a whole, the budget as a whole is limited and sales tax is the big issue. And so with so many more people buying online, then sales tax goes down. And so the city has less money yeah. in its coffers. So we're very grateful for whatever but we can that, get. Well, that's money well spent because right. that has a knock-on effect to oh, every other aspect of the city and its economy. So, you know, the restaurants and the bars are buzzing and... You know, I've I've been here last time during uh, Art in the Park, and I've seen, you know, the energy in this in this city when when it's buzzing, and everyone benefits. You know, so and there's a lot of competition out there. So yeah, to see it as a uh, as an investment, as worthwhile as investing in the police and you know ambulance and all, all the other essential services, I think arts is also an essential service. Absolutely. And at a state level, too, you know, we have the Missouri Arts Council, and so they are helping to uh, fund arts all around the state. And the uh, the money from the Missouri Arts Council, any entertainer that performs in Missouri from out of state, a percentage, I think it's 2% of their um, money that they're paid stays behind in the state. And that money is supposed to go to the Missouri Arts Council for funding there. And we'll, I'm going to talk about that with Marie Hunter in the next segment okay. of the show. But it's kind of an interesting process. There are all these mm. different ways that money mm. comes into the arts. But, you know, one of the things that I always kind of laugh at, I go to lots of arts events, whether it's theatre or music or, or the visual arts. I always think it's the same 2,000 people that I right. see. We're in a city, a growing city, 110,000. And it's right. difficult sometimes to reach out to those other areas around the city and impress upon them that it's great that so much art is being produced, yeah. but art has to also be consumed. Otherwise, yes. art cannot be produced. Yes, very so true. So that's, that's very always true. tough. But that can also be a two-way equation because that might that kind of feedback might push back into the people who are producing the art and say, well, maybe we need to produce some art of a different kind to attract a different audience as well. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people, you know, there's never a problem filling a 60,000-seat football stadium in Colombia. Right. <laughs> but right. getting 100 people as into I it. Saw, <laughs> right. As I saw the other day, yes. So, tail, tailgate party? Tailgating. Tailgating. I went tailgating with your lovely husband, and uh, <laughs> yeah, that was fun for a while. <laughs> Particularly American phenomenon. Right. I've never, never done a tailgating before. but Maybe you could start the trend in Australia. <laughs> Australian rules for. We have this weird thing where we just go into the stadium and watch things. <laughs> yeah, bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you have a beautiful villa property in Bali mm-hmm. uh, called Tamusese yes. that you built how many years ago? Uh, 2001, so 17, let's say. So tell us a little bit about Tamusese. Okay, so um, Tamusese was an idea, really, that stemmed out of um, the time that I lived in Jakarta in Indonesia in the mid-90s. Which is where we met. Which is, I was getting there, <laughs> I was getting there, full disclosure, that's how long I've, that's how long I've known you. But as you know, we had a, a, a wonderful and unique group of friends from all over the world in that time. And um, come 97, the Asian monetary crisis the economy tanked and we all left in a very short time. I got transferred to Bali. I guess I was one of the lucky ones in a sense. But um, myself and a couple of our friends came up with the idea of creating a place in Bali uh, where we could all hang out still, even though we had been cast asunder into the nether regions of Asia and Australia (laughs) and a few of us further afield. And so 
the idea of Tamu Sese was born. We, we pulled our money, four of us, and um, built a couple of villas on a beautiful piece of land that we found away from the general tourist areas of Bali because our brief said, you know, we wanted something that had an authentic Bali atmosphere in an authentic Balinese village rather than in one of the more developed tourist areas of the island. And um, so we finished those two and a few years later, due to demand and cost, we decided to up the ante and we built two, two more. So we have four villas, uh, all fully self-contained, um, each with their own swimming pool, but which can be rented um, individually or collectively. And a few times a year, we just take over with our friends and and have a bit of a shindig and a bit of a hoo-ha. And uh, it's over 17 years. We've, we've done weddings, we've done wakes, we've done birthdays, you know, we've done all sorts of celebrations there. And by now we feel that the walls of the villa are imbibed with good energy and it's a pretty magical place. So It yeah. is a beautiful place. Has as I mean it's many like say it's seventeen years since you built it. Has mm. Bali has tourist Bali encroached upon your farm as your little fishing village Not much? A little bit, a little bit. I mean, south of us we're, we're if you know Bali, Seminyak is probably the main funky tourist hub and we're about you know, 20 to 30 minutes by taxi from Seminyak up the coast. Um, but between us and Seminyak, another village uh, called Batu Belong has now f- popped into a, a tourist hub in itself, a, a more low-key, funkier, um, younger set at mm. Batu Belong, and it's a surfing spot as well. So there's lots of seafront uh, restaurants, but it is a tourist area. So now we're within walking distance of that if you want to go for bars restaurants um you know great seafood but our village itself uh because there's no large tracts of land so sort of mega developments and big hotels touch wood uh won't come there and in fact we've actually seen the development leap to villages further north so we're feeling pretty secure that our village you know i mean there's several westerners uh live there and we've probably our Villa development of four villas is about the biggest one in the village. So it's not completely authentic, but you can certainly get the feeling of authenticity. You're not walking out of your villa and seeing shopping centres and, you know, sort of drunken tourists in buses. You're looking over rice paddies from We're looking over rice paddies to the sunset and the, and the beach is about 200 metres away and you can, you can hear the surf. And the people who live in the village are still fishing and and farming rice and coconuts. And if you walk around our village in the morning or at dusk, it's exactly the same as it's been for hundreds of years. And we think that's pretty amazing. Now, you, you, your whole design uh, creed is that it should be sustainable and you're working as much as you can with local craftsmen. Yes. So w- what kind of facilities are available on Bali if you're building a villa? How much do you have to import and how much is available there on the island? Uh, on the island itself, uh, the specialists that you need to build uh, are definitely available, and um, the materials you, you kind of have to look at Bali as being part of Indonesia. So, within Indonesia, we get almost everything that we need in order to build a villa. Um, magnificent stones and timbers are wonderful. Um, 
textures, you know, in terms of the materials available, tapware, sanitary wear, tiles, furniture, you know, Bali is such an art centre, so it's amazing furniture. All of that is really available in an average luxury villa that I would design and build. Probably the only thing we might import or that is an imported item would be door and window furniture. So sliding tracks for doors and things like that. So that sort of technical level. Yeah. So uh, um, for people, we should maybe say where we're talking about because we're yeah. in the middle of America. So we're talking about a country called Indonesia, yes. which straddles the equator yes. right around the other side of the world. It's kind yes. of below Malaysia. It's north of Australia. And Bali is a, a small island that is yes. predominantly Hindu yes. island, which is at the end of the island of Java, which is where the capital city is. So uh, Bali is this beautiful little tiny island that has been adored by artists for yeah. just hundreds of years yeah, probably yeah um so a, a traditional balinese family home is not like we think of a home describe how a balinese structure so family um, home is structured the main difference with a, a traditional balinese village house is that uh it will consist of a series of pavilions set within a courtyard and these pavilions in balinese strict balinese architecture are designed according to almost sacred principles that have been passed down from generation to generation and are recorded and will include pavilions for ceremonies, which the Balinese being Hindu are very big on. Um, it will include uh, sleeping pavilions. It will include living pavilions. It will include sort of service pavilions. It will even include pavilions for animals. Um, and so that idea of having pavilions set within a garden rather than a single house is really what informs our design because the beauty of that in a climate as warm and luxurious as Bali's is is that when you go from your living room to your bedroom you actually walk outside into the garden to do it and sometimes it rains so that you know makes that a bit of a challenge but not so much of a challenge that you abandon the idea in design and you can overcome weather extremes by having covered walkways, you know, and various things like that. But I think the most authentic and lovely Balinese designs are the ones where you literally do walk out into the garden and along something as informal as, you know, pavers, um, stepping stones across a pond, maybe, to get to your bedroom. And, um, and if it's raining or there's a storm, well, you sort of wait till it's passed or you get an umbrella or... In the case of, you know, more upmarket villas, you have some, one of your gorgeous staff hold an umbrella <laughs> over your head as you do it. But there's always a way, you know, and it sort of reconnects people back to nature and it makes them come out of their air-conditioned cocoons. And I'm very much in favour of that because I, I have... A, um, I have concerns about the way architecture is going in terms of isolating us from the world around us and how city architecture, which is designed around the idea that we have polluted air and we must be in an air-conditioned space, you know, in order to survive almost, has kind of permeated many, many different types of architecture around the world without question. So people who live in really lovely climates like the tropics or temperate zones, their houses are very... Uh, way too way too isolated from the climate around them so you can close them down in winter 
But can you open them up in summer or spring or when the weather's nice? And in a lot of cases, the answer is no, you know, because openable windows and doors and things like that are seen as inefficient. And they can be. They can be. But this is the, this is the other side of it. The open pavilion styles that we use in Bali can actually be... Um, <clears throat> I mean, there can be two or three days a year when we have big wet season storms that blow in when your living room's unusable. And we accept that. And, you know, when we have outside guests staying, we have to explain it to them. But, you know, if the other 362 days of the year you're sitting out there thinking, oh, my God, this is just so lovely having no walls and just a roof over my head and a ceiling fan, then really what's the payoff, you know? So I yeah. think generally we, and I see that particularly uh, maybe here in the Midwest where we have, you know, hot, super hot summers, we have quite cold winters, but we're very intolerant of, of temperature change. So most people have their thermostat set at 68 degrees year round, summer or winter, yeah. which means everything has to be closed all the time. You never open doors yeah. or windows. And we, we exist in this tiny range of like maybe four degree yes. temperature, yes. which is crazy. Yes. Not like how it, our ancestors. So if, if the temperature, you know, due to environmental concerns or because you're feeling a bit different, the temperature plummets to 65 one day, right. I mean, are you going to die? You know, it's like uh, there's sacrifices that we have to make and, and we find that if we're in a type of architecture that lets you have that freedom to say, oh, it's a little bit chilly, but I'll bang open the doors today because I, I feel like some fresh air. You kind of want to do it. You kind of want to have the, you know, the option to be able to do it. And really, when you're designing in Bali, what I remember about your uh, all the things that I've been to in Bali is this idea of uh, not only you know passive solar but passive breeze. So yes. they're designing so that you always have a, a breeze, cross breeze, cross breeze cross coming breeze. through. Yeah. So the idea, the pavilion idea, is of huge benefit when you're considering cross breezes, because every room is open. To the air on four sides so as long as you're in the living pavilions we have no walls at all so it's just columns holding up a roof so it doesn't matter what direction the breeze is coming from you get it and in the bedrooms which in you know if you're down by the beach it gets hot at night in the dry especially in the wet season so we do air condition them but they're air conditionable rather than fully air conditioned so through sliding or folding you know, doors and panels, they're also openable. So we open them up when the weather's good. And again, doesn't matter what direction the breeze is coming from, it, it's, it gets in. The other uh, beautiful thing that I think this type of architecture allows us is in bathrooms, which become so much more than just a bathroom. And in fact, at Tamusese, uh, our bathrooms are actually, we call them bathing courtyards because essentially you go out the back of your bedroom onto a kind of a kind of veranda covered veranda and we have we have the sort of toilet in a niche in there and a couple of vanities but the shower itself and the bathtub are out in the courtyard amongst the plants and the the showers we have big rain, uh, rainforest uh, rain shower shower heads so you know you turn on the, the water and you feel like you're standing in a rain shower out in the courtyard and if you want to climb in the tub in the evening you look up and the stars are your canopy and so people go well that sounds that's all very good and well but 
what happens if it's raining? And my answer is, well, if it's raining, you get wet. Right. It's As warm. opposed to when you're in a shower and you get wet. And it's nice warm rain. And it's, it's nice not warm cold rain. rain. Or, you know, you wait until it stops raining to have a shower. I mean, it's, right. again, it's not the end of the world, you know. You're sort of responding to uh, the climate and the conditions around you and it's modifying your lifestyle, but it pushes you in another direction. Oh, I might not have a shower now. I might, you know, go and sit in the living room and watch the sunset or have a cocktail you know it's just there's always something else so uh, landscaping is integral to your design but you, you're not a landscape architect or how, no. how much do you get involved with that and how much do you work with other people on landscape oh uh, you know I, i'm i'm not great with plant identification or placement but in this type of architecture it's true that the spaces in between the pavilions are as important as the pavilions themselves and if you're going to walk between your living room and your bedroom every time you go to your bedroom, you know, it's very important to get that journey right. So I tend to have more input in the design of what we call hardscape, which is ponds and courtyard walls and swimming pools and terraces and all of the things that are made out of masonry or pavers or concrete. Um, and then the softscape, I will hand over to a landscape designer or a softscape contractor that might include design in their brief and I will tell them what type of feel that I want, um, how much shade you know we're looking at and whether there's any lines of view that we want to maintain um, and just so yeah you, we work closely with them in that regard in terms of the, the and sometimes sometimes they get involved with the hardscape as well um, but mostly, mostly they're confined to the plants. And the other thing that we do in those gardens is garden artwork. So we'll have sculpture, we'll have, you know, paintings or mirrors that are designed to be placed outside. Um, you know, we have friends, you know, in Bali that specialise in producing amazing ceramic vases that can be used in fountains and, you know, that, and that will last forever because they're kiln-fired. Um, yeah, so it's just creativity gushing really in these types of houses that I love working on. So and what is, what is the maintenance like? So, you know, you've designed a villa, you've moved on, somebody's living there, not talking about Tamu Sese, but talking about just generally, uh, I've, I've decided to invest in a villa and a piece of property and land in Bali. How difficult is it to maintain that? Do they, is there, uh, do, does the weather degrade? The, yes. The yes. space more so quickly. So that, that sort of climate is very, very demanding on any building whatsoever. But again, in recent years, as we try to get a more pristine, you know, crisp, immaculate, sometimes white on white kind of minimalist approach to design, we don't really think about how that looks or feels uh, in terms of uh, maintenance or you know the 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 knock the knock on effect of everyday living and usage so you know there's there's nothing sort of more pleasing than a crispy white minimalist um room or house or finish until it's not crispy and white anymore and in the tropics that can that'll be one wet season that'll be one storm and suddenly you know your beautiful white walls are sort of stained and you know a, a coconut's fallen on them or you know <laughs> Uh, fruit bats died in the gutter or something's happened and so you're rushing around repainting repainting trying to 
you know, recreate what you could never achieve in the first place. So rather than take that on, conceptually, what we do is try to pick materials that when they develop a patina, it looks even more beautiful than when they were new. And you know, one of the one of the classic um, one of the classic one, you know, classic materials I could name is copper, which, as everyone knows, you know, when it ages, develops this beautiful verdigris uh, green. You know, like a copper green is what it is. So that's one that we use if we're going to use spouts on our gutters. We'll often go to copper because so it turns green. You know, and then it stops. Um, still can be lovely if it rusts, and then you just leave it. But if you're trying to keep immaculate finishes, you're still you're still battling uphill, you know. And look, this is my opinion. A lot of people who build in the tropics um, disagree, and they're still trying to achieve that pristine finish. But in my opinion, it's an uphill struggle, and they haven't. They're not. They're not doing very well. <laughs> and all of this is detailed in your book, Building Your Bali Dream Villa, which is available on Amazon, I believe. Uh, iTunes iTunes and Amazon, but iTunes seems to be the, um, yes, I don't know, seems to work better. I'm not sure why, but it does. So if you are curious about building your own uh, Bali Dream Villa, then uh, look out for Guy Morgan's book. Guy, it has been a delight to have you in the studio today. It's been lovely to meet you for the very first time. (laughs) This this year. Guy is just such a talented uh, architect and absolutely one of my oldest and definitely my best mate. Oh, back at you. Back at you, darling. (laughs) You're listening to the Speaking of the Arts and after the break, we'll be back with Marie Hunter. Stay tuned. It is a delight to have Marie Hunter to myself for 25 minutes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for having me, Diana. Welcome, Marie. It's so good to speak to you. You, you know, you're one of the few people, I think, that has such a huge overview of all of the arts. You've worked, you know, at the state level, at the local level, and so it's exciting to get your input onto like you know what is the state of the arts in Missouri but now I hope I know you hate long bios Um, however (laughs) you are so accomplished in the world of the arts and arts advocacy that it's kind of hard to edit down your highlights reel so when we first met you were manager of the office of cultural affairs and were a saviour to me and a font of knowledge as I first navigated the local arts scene as the executive director of the Columbia Art League and it was tough and I really valued being able to go and knock on your door and you always just said come in and sit down and you would help me through things like grant application and just you know where to go to for what information so thank you you're welcome (laughs) I was just doing my job (laughs) you were doing it very well thank you and since then you've also served on various boards and panels for both the Missouri Arts Council and Missouri Citizens for the Arts and you are currently chair of the Missouri Citizens for the Arts Advisory Council correct amongst other responsibilities is there anything else that we should add to that as a current snapshot of your busy life uh, that's good I like your snapshot <laughs> good good job thank you very much yeah I, I cut a lot out so I, <laughs> no right. offense to anybody no. any organizations that's that were okay. missed that's all right so let's start with a huge question how important have the arts been in your life? Oh, I think absolutely formative. I mean, I think I'm probably not unlike a lot of people that are art supporters. I started out 
uh, as a kid just loving the arts and fortunately with an art supportive parent who encouraged me and um, little known fact I actually was a fine arts major um, in college and um, then changed so I you know I was one of the people that I ended up working with a lot of so that was you know a good experience to have in in my mind studying art um, and thinking that maybe I would be practicing art and then I switched gears a little bit but you know continued I've really always worked in the arts my work has has always been art related in some way not necessarily making art which I haven't really done since I was a college student so what flavor of fine arts did you study I was um, a visual art major so painting of no I was a graphic design major commercial art major but in early classes you're doing all of the painting the you know watercolor um, drawing 3d design so um, I have about 20 hours of studio art before I then changed my major but I changed to art history and then worked my way into arts administration in my working life do you ever make art um, Are there things in your house? That, um, that <laughs> I came across my drawing portfolio uh, recently in the basement. <laughs> I did have a moment of thinking, "Wow, that's got, that's pretty good." <laughs> I mean, it was you know like drawing one and two, cro- you know, cross hatching kind of stuff, um, working on shadows. I do. I do things with my hands. I do. I love to needlepoint, and but in terms of sitting down to paint or draw, I really I do not do that. One of the things I learned as a graphic design major this will this will date me a little bit. It was right as graphic design was becoming really computer oriented, but they had kept cra- uh, graphic design one classes so that you were working on actually with your hands lettering and so I learned traditional calligraphy in my graphic design one class so I can still do traditional calligraphies which I do I guess that's that would be creating that would be in that category you know I often used to get people call me at the Columbia Art League to ask me specifically if I knew any calligraphers Mm -hmm. and I'd usually pass them on to Kate Gray who is has beautiful uh, calligraphy work but now I know now you know they could (laughs) You know, another calligrapher. (laughs) So stepping back from you personally, why are the arts essential Mm. to society as a whole? Well, I think, you know, all you have to do is look at how we preserve our history, how we define ourselves. And it's absolutely through the arts it's literature it's music it's the visual arts anything that we preserve i mean if you study history if you look if you look at your kids history textbook which that would be online now but but even then how is how do we teach history it's through the arts it's plays that were written about the times the paintings that depict what was happening it's the sculptures that commemorate a person or an event or an ideal um, it's dance it's song certainly literature so the arts really are unfortunately we 
are viewed as an extra, but really they are this essential way of communicating and preserving and celebrating. I am I'm interested in the growth of arts and science being brought together. So I, mm-hmm. I had been to Trinity College in Dublin last summer and we went to the science gallery there, which was super interesting. Right. And it was all art projects that yeah. kind of, or science projects that had an art component or mm-hmm. art that had a science component. And it was so fascinating. And of course, there were kids everywhere and they were, everything was interactive. And so you were playing with like, you know, there was a, a, a lump of uranium that was in a box and it had been the, the radioactive components of it have been turned into different musical notes so as you move this little tray under the uranium it, the uranium played music yeah you had to fight your way to it that's so many right, people because in front so of many you. people well and <laughs> you know actually I, you make such a great point that really almost every discipline can be taught with the arts or demonstrated or highlighted or you know, I mean, it's it's a really unique thing about the arts that you can um, pair it with math, with science, certainly with history, with English, with you know. Um, but for some reason, that isn't always uh, evident to people. But it's it's a, across the board. I would say that it is one of the most universal ways to communicate. And there are so many studies done on in schools on how adding mm-hmm. more arts to the syllabus cuts down on truancy, it cuts down on bad behavior. Right. Children are so much more engaged uh, in, in schooling uh, when they yeah, have the arts. Kids who are involved in the arts have better attendance, they are in trouble less, they do better in school. There's even some studies about SAT scores for kids who are involved in music. Um, so, yeah, but but why is it that if there's all this evidence that we, for some reason, aren't always supporting the arts in schools? It's kind of a, a funny thing that, not funny, ha-ha, but funny, strange, right. that those connections aren't better made. And I, I wonder whether, you know, as adults, so many of us forget mm-hmm. how much we loved art as right. a child, and it becomes less important to us as mm-hmm. adults. So we don't, it's not front of mind. We forget how important uh, it mm-hmm. is growing up. And I think we often uh, lose our faith in our own abilities somehow. Yes. So I think many people, me included, mm-hmm. I loved art at school. I had one bad exam. Mm-hmm. And I never touched art again. Well, I think you have made a great point, and that is that that moment in people's lives when they go from being free with their acceptance of art and their um, work in art to having that self-conscious moment of saying, I can't sing, or I can't dance, or I, I'm, not a good, I'm not good at drawing. So there is something unfortunate that happens in, a, in some m- many people's lives at a certain stage where they lose that confidence in creation. And maybe that then translates to what you're talking about. I mean, our lives are full of design. All those people out there who think they know nothing about the arts, they don't know how to appreciate the arts probably don't recognize how many design related decisions they make every single day every brand every brand right. that they identify right. is all done to yeah. art right. the 2017 arts and economic prosperity study uh, which looked at the economic impact of non-profit arts and cultural organizations and their audiences in missouri and i think around the country too right um, had compelling numbers between arts organizations and audiences there was over one billion dollars 
in billion with a B right. in direct expenditure, and that's just in Missouri, right. not and, nationwide. And not only is it just in Missouri, but that's just nonprofit right. agencies that were studied. There were others that weren't even in that and it didn't take into account the for-profit arts businesses that are right so it's it's huge it's huge just shy of 90 million dollars again in the non-profit sector i guess was revenue was generated right. for state and local governments so right. it's a it, it offered 90 million more do- dollars to the state coffers almost thirty-two thousand jobs are created within the non-profit sector in arts and culture and a staggering 21.4 million people attended events which given that our population is uh, just over six million means that right. everybody went to three on average three and a half right. events Let's hope. so given those numbers mm-hmm. how is funding for the arts ever in question uh, it's that it, it's always in question unfortunately it's you know groundhog day you wake up every year and you go oh we got to go down there and fight for art funding it's really unfortunate and i don't think it's because um well certainly it's not because there aren't good uh numbers that back it up so it was you know really important for the Missouri Arts Council to do that work along with the Americans for the Arts because it does provide the proof and boy it's a million dollar question about why we can't communicate better that message I I do think there is good communication about it why that isn't accepted or advanced more I don't know and when you th- when you say looking at those numbers of how many people attended events, so as a state, on average, mm-hmm. we all go to arts events, so we mm-hmm. all know that it's important. Right. So we should all be advocating mm-hmm. and voting for money to be spent on the arts because right. it makes us human. Right. Gives us a soul. Right, for sure. And I think there's a real danger in thinking about, obviously the basics are essential. We must all have you know food and shelter and we like to have uh, electricity in our homes and flushing toilets and all of those things but I think there's uh, it's really important for us to also consider the soul like you said and and if if we have no beauty if we have no Oh, opportunity to express or or um, experience expression by others. It it changes things and changes it in not a good way. So I think it's important to see the arts as an essential. And it and one of the main points of advocacy is access. Um, so that everyone needs the opportunity to enjoy music and dance and theater and see beautiful things that um, if we aren't striving for public support of the arts then it really does narrow those audiences to those who can on their own consume the arts so talk a little bit about how the money flows so Mm -hmm. at a national level we have the national endowment for the arts and that organization uh, or federal organization puts gives money to each state right now each state much must match that money correct this is where the missouri arts council comes in so not only are they distributing money that's been allocated from our own state government Mm -hmm. but they are also the passing point from federal money into the state Right. So if you think, oh, National Endowment for the Arts, that's in Washington, D.C., that doesn't really you know, matter to me. That's not the case at all, because the NEA supports 
every state arts council and in the state of Missouri it's anywhere between 700 to 900 thousand dollars that comes from the National Endowment for the Arts into the Missouri Arts Council's budget they don't sit on it they want to get that out so they are then granting that out to arts agencies around the state there's over over 500 arts organizations in the state of Missouri that are receiving Missouri Arts Council funding, all the way from little little projects in very small communities to bigger projects in um, larger communities. So it's it's a significant amount of money that's getting out into communities. I always like to talk about that as you know, there for a while stimulus was a a key word. Well, it, the Missouri Arts Council money, the NEA money, really does become stimulus because if an arts organization gets money from the Missouri Arts Council or the NEA, they're matching it, number one. And then they're spending it in their communities. So they're paying for printing. They're purchasing services. They're paying staff people. They're buying all kinds of things to produce their arts events. So that money doesn't just support an arts event. It supports many um, businesses in the community. And and how is that federal number decided? Does it depend on just how much the federal government grants to the NEA? Or like what, what makes it vary? That... I cannot give you an answer on. I'm sure there's the a great formula. Right. There's some fabulous formula out there. So I, I don't know how the NEA, but I do know that they, one of their missions is to support every state arts council. And it's a reason that we always want the state to be budgeting for the Missouri Arts Council so that they can then access that funding from the NEA. And within our own state government, there is a tax called the Athletes and Entertainers Tax. Tell right. us a little bit about that. Well, it's commonly known as the A&E tax. And it basically, it's a, it's a really creative way of... Um, generating some dollars, taxes, athletes and entertainers that come from out of the state of Missouri and are here to perform. So Elton John does a concert in St. Louis or Kansas City or Columbia, and part of his contract is this tax that goes to the state of Missouri. Some professional team comes and plays in the state of Missouri, you know, plays the Cardinals. All of those players that don't reside in the state of Missouri pay a tax. It's collected into this pool that's the, called the A&E tax. And then the proceeds from that then are to be split among the cultural partners, one of which is the Missouri Arts Council. I'm going to test my memory here. Historic preservation, libraries. Humanities Council. Yeah, public radio, humanities council. Public broadcasting, yeah, that's and it. Public broadcasting. <laughs> Okay, so um, the Missouri Arts Council has a larger percentage than those others, but all the cultural partners are to get a percentage. The problem is very little of the 60% is supposed to come to the cultural partners, but um, I don't think it ever has. And so a very small percentage then comes to the groups and so then of course you know there's less than that goes out to different communities through granting so people who don't support the arts for whatever reason and think well why should my tax money go to that it mm-hmm. isn't their tax no, money that's right. going it's to people it. that are coming from out of state that so it's a it's a like i said it's a creative way to collect funds that could support things locally and statewide the numbers here i have 
oh, it must be 2017, Missouri Department of Revenue collected nearly $40 million in new mm-hmm. funds from the A&E athletes and entertainers tax who have worked in Missouri. And yeah, by statute, 60% is allocated to the Missouri Arts Council, which would be $21 million right. that would go to Missouri mm-hmm. Arts Council. But I think funding for this year was what, 4.8 4. 4. million? 4.8 mm-hmm. And so there is also written into the statute, or I think it was changed, that that money could be appropriated. Mm-hmm. So if the general fund needs it, right. then even though this statute exists that says right. we have this tax mm-hmm. for this specific purpose, the general fund can still say, well, we're overriding that and we're going to take Correct. most of your money away. So the three words that matter in this are subject to appropriation. <laughs> it has to be. So that, um, what did you say, the $21 million? That $21 million has to be appropriated and it may be appropriated elsewhere. It's, it's something that makes us sad every year because it it does get swept and it's not the only fund that gets swept i think it's commonly done but i guess compared to maybe our neighbors in kansas we Mm -hmm. are lucky to have 4.8 million dollars coming to the arts yeah in fact kansas almost lost their their arts council and they have one staff person and pretty limited budget they're still accessing their uh, national endowment for the arts funds but um, it's an example of you know talking about the importance of advocacy i know that there are art-loving Kansans, um, and I'm sure they worked hard on advocacy. But it's why it matters every year for us to say to our elected officials, I benefit, my community benefits, my kids benefit, I benefit from the arts, and it's important to me that you find a place in the budget to support the Missouri Arts Council. And this is what the Missouri Citizens for the Arts does. So this is an advocacy group. We have one lobbyist, I guess, Kina Iman, who hangs around in Jeff City and (laughs) knocks on doors. And right. as you know, it's important. And there is a Citizens Day Correct. every February right. um, that anyone can get involved with. Absolutely. Come on down and knock on those doors with Kina. Um, but I, Citizens Day for the Arts is, is a great event, and I encourage people to come. But I think it's important for people to recognize that advocacy is a year-round thing. And um, it's something that you should be doing, you know, whenever someone knocks on your door asking for a vote or you run into an elected official in the grocery store or at the cocktail party, you say, hey, you know, I I value the arts in my community and I hope that you're supporting locally. We've got the Office of Cultural Affairs. Our city needs to support that with city dollars, our statewide, the Missouri Arts Council, and then nationally also. And I think locally, I, I would doubt that any of our local state officials don't support funding for the arts because they see how vibrant Columbia is. They see it in action. They see those dollars from the arts and uh, athletes and entertainers tax in in action. But if you're not used to wandering around the halls of government and randomly knocking on unknown legislators' door, it is (laughs) nerve-wracking. Yeah, and if you draw, as I did, if you draw the straw of a politician whose primary concern is upholding the Second Amendment and tax cuts for big businesses, it's a bit like trying to talk about solar panels to a cave dweller they they're not interested right. and it's kind of scary and right. i was not good at it yeah um so how, how do you make it work well i think you have to circle back first of all i think you have to be realistic and you have to just really believe in what you do and what you're saying and your cause and 
and you know that some people aren't going to agree with you, but it's important for you to say those words for them to hear you. And they have to hear you. They need to hear you. I would always circle back to the... Um, study that you shared with you know the the unfortunate thing is going back to what we were talking about before that so many people see the arts as this extra thing and they don't equate it to you know the arts are an industry employing many many people and spending money and bringing money in it is no mistake that the Missouri Arts Council is a part of the Department of Economic Development that means the arts are an industry so I think um, being armed with numbers like the Missouri Arts Council was able to bring out in their economic impact study is really, really important. Sharing those, showing the impact, and also showing uh, how many different organizations in a certain region are receiving Missouri Arts Council funding. Sometimes the Missouri Arts Council funding may be the only thing that's supporting an arts event in a smaller community or assisting schools with arts education. So it really I think you can make those connections and you just have to keep at it, the Groundhog Day thing. And so if people want to be more involved with advocacy, they can become a member of Missouri Citizens for the Arts. They can support the organization year-round. It isn't just once a year. You no, can right. It's absolutely it's a year-round thing that we all need to be saying and doing. And unfortunately, I think you and I have talked about this, that sometimes in arts organizations, we are so focused on the art that we're making or providing or presenting, we forget about the importance of messaging, about how important we are as an industry and the impact that we make on the economy and quality of living and education. Do you happen to know, you might not know this, what date the Advocacy Day is next year? It's usually uh, mid-February. It's fe- no, it's, I think it's, uh, it's February um, 8th, I think. You don't have to be a member, and because we're in mid-Missouri, it's really easy to come down. There's information on the uh, Missouri Citizens for the Arts website, which is www.mo and the number 4arts.org. So join us. Uh, You don't have to be a member, like I said. We're just happy to have people. But also, if you can't come in February, you can always write. You can call. You can email. And especially around election time, you can let people know when they're knocking on your doors. You can ask them about how do they feel about, you know, we've got a senatorial campaign that's happening um, uh, nationally so um, it's important to ask those candidates how they feel about NEA funding and then statewide about MAC funding. And if you want to get a hold of those numbers that I talked about earlier those are available from the Missouri Citizens for the Arts website and also from the Missouri Arts Council. Missouri Arts Council, right. Um, They've got a lot of good information out there. I believe it's February 6th is um, Citizens for the Arts Day. So sign up to get their emails and then they'll be reminded about that but yeah if you speak to a senator remind them that over one billion dollars in direct expenditure went to the arts uh, in mid-missouri in 2017 and that's only the non-profit organizations that were studied thank you so much marie hunter thanks for having me (laughs) and thank you for all that you continue to do and have done for so many years to support the arts in columbia and across the state you are making a difference every day thank you (laughs) thank you